2: Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco. Protests have erupted across Iran following the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who was detained by Iran's morality police for allegedly wearing her headscarf too loosely. She later died in custody. Demonstrations here in California took place over the weekend. KQED reporter Kiana Mogadam went to one vigil held in Berkeley. And she brings us this story.
3: Hundreds of people gathered outside Wheeler Hall on the UC Berkeley campus on Friday night. They lit candles, sang songs, and held signs, many of which carried an image of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman from the Kurdistan province in Iran. Amini was arrested in Tehran after being accused of wearing an improper hijab or headscarf by Iran's morality police, a group that enforces the nation's strict dress code. She died three days later in police custody. Eva Kargosha is one of the many people who showed up at Friday's demonstration. I'm here today because I believe in um, the rights of women and life and freedom um, for Iranian people. Iranian authorities say Amini died from a heart attack and pre-existing conditions. But her family and protesters say her death was a result of abuse by the police. They're demanding an investigation, justice for Amini, and others they say have died at the hands of the regime. They are murderers. Nadan Rasouli was born in Iran and now lives in the Bay Area. She says Iran's morality police have got to go. They're killing young people and this, this was not the only one. Hundreds and thousands were killed, but they didn't have a platform. Nobody knew about them. Rasouli says these protests are important because they show the rest of the world what's been happening in Iran. Days into the protest, Iran shut down the internet. Rasouli says it's been difficult to contact loved ones. We are desperate. Even, you know, simple saying hi to the people in Iran, we can't do that. Because once they disconnect the internet, they start killing people. Protests in Iran continue to grow in what's now the nation's largest anti-government demonstration since the 2009 elections. For The California Report, I'm Kiana Mokadem.
2: After a summer break, the state task force studying reparations for Black Californians has resumed its groundbreaking work. Over the weekend, the panel met in Los Angeles to move the conversation forward and talk about lessons they can draw from historical reparations work, plus the actual economics of the plan. KQED's Annalise Finney was at the task force meeting in Los Angeles and joins me now. Hi, Annalise. Hey, Marty. So Annalise, as the task force starts working on its
4: reparations plan, are there any models they're relying on? Well, California is the first state in the nation to try to come up with a statewide black reparations plan. So to some extent, they're in uncharted waters. But at the meeting this weekend, the state task force heard from Japanese-American activists who fought for and won reparations in the 1980s for their incarceration during World War II. So these activists were invited to the meeting to share their experiences. Mia Iwataki was one of those activists. At the meeting, she said a multiracial coalition helped push the reparations bill through Congress. We recognize the origin of this violence and racism began with the white supremacist and colonialist actions against indigenous peoples and kidnapped and enslaved Africans. She told the task force and the audience that allies were essential to the success of Japanese-American reparations because they, like African-Americans, represent a small portion of the population.
2: Are there other models the task force is looking into?
4: Yeah, so the task force also heard from our experts about reparations processes in other places around the world. For example, in South Africa, people who were eligible for reparations were given a one-time cash payment. And in Chile, reparations were more like pensions and are still being paid out today. Okay, so I imagine the task force is also looking to Black Californians
2: for guidance on what the reparation plan should look like,
4: right? Yeah, so every task force meeting opens with an hour of public comment, where people can share their ideas about what reparations should look like. During public comment on the first day, retired Professor Emeritus Joyce Faye Allen Hamilton took the mic.
2: What do elderly Black Americans need for the California reparation? As an elderly Black American, my sisters and I, including my husband, his father was a sharecropper. We do not need to continue our education, nor obtain jobs, nor housing. What we would like is monetary
4: compensation, loan forgiveness. Also at the meeting were UCLA researchers who presented the results of a community engagement study. What they found was that cash payments were most popular among Black people surveyed. But for the general population of the state, the findings were a little bit different. Here's Professor Michael Stoll.
3: Majority of Californians support direct cash remedies to compensate for harms to African-Americans. But there's stronger support, as measured by the survey, for monetary measures that don't include cash.
4: In the survey, they describe monetary programs as things like free college tuition and interest-free home or business loans.
2: Cash payments seem like a hot topic among these discussions. How much money are we talking about here?
4: Well, there's still a lot to be figured out about that question, and it hasn't even been decided yet whether cash payments will be a part of the ultimate reparations plan. But nonetheless, the task force is working with a team of economists whose job it is to figure out how much money racist policies cost Black Californians. To give you a sense of it, here's how economists are calculating the cost of redlining. They're taking the average per person housing wealth difference between white and black residents in 1980, which is around the time that redlining was outlawed, and then multiplying it by the number of black residents in the state at that time, which the economists calculate comes out to around $570 billion. The economists suggest that that money could then be divided between current black residents who could prove they lived or are descendants of people who lived in the state while redlining was law. That sounds complicated. What's next? They're expected to submit their final recommendations to the legislature in June. But it doesn't end there. In order for reparations to happen, the recommendations will have to be made into law by a vote in the legislature, and then funded in the state budget. That was KQED's Annalise Finney. Thanks, Annalise. Thanks, Mari.
2: Mental health workers with Kaiser Permanente Northern California have overwhelmingly rejected a contract offer from the health care provider that would end their strike that's now entering its seventh week. The union representing the therapist says that Kaiser's proposal was nearly unchanged from when the strike began back in August. Therapists say they want to strategically pace initial intakes to help ensure timely follow-ups with patients. In a statement, Kaiser suggested that the union's, quote, aggressive proposal would actually increase the time patients have to wait between appointments. In other news, this month marks the 20th anniversary of the passage of paid family leave in California, the first state to offer this benefit to workers taking time off to bond with a new child or care for an ill
0: relative. KQED's labor correspondent Farida Javala Romero reports. Then-Governor Gray Davis signed the law on September 23, 2002. Most workers in the state fund the paid leave program through a payroll tax and can get a fraction of their wages for up to eight weeks. Governor Gavin Newsom spoke to family advocates celebrating the anniversary. Our nation-leading paid leave program is family and small business friendly, and it creates an equitable and inclusive model, we believe, for the rest of the country. As it happens, Newsom is considering a bill on his desk that would increase payments to 90% of a person's wages if they're low income, or 70% for all other eligible workers. Now it's just 60%, which Rosalba Contreras of San Bernardino County says was not enough when she had her baby. So we couldn't afford rent, food, food bills, everything that goes on top. She spent just two weeks bonding with her preemie before she had to return to the office. I could have probably spent more time with her to make sure that she was healthy before I even returned back to work because she wasn't healthy. She wasn't ready and I wasn't ready. Neither of us were. She wants Newsom to support SB 951. He has until September 30th to sign or veto. For The California Report, I'm Farida Yavala-Romero. And that's the California
2: Report for Monday, September 26th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org Personal Capital providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at Schmidtocean.org.